You're listening to a podcast from Meaning of Life TV. Hi, welcome to Meaning of Life TV. My name is Arya Cohen-Wade. I'm an editor at the site. And my guest today is Professor Katie Gordon. Uh, Katie, could you introduce yourself? Sure. I am an associate professor of psychology at North Dakota State University, and I'm also a co-host of a podcast called Jedi Council that explores mental health and fictional characters. Uh, thanks so much for coming on today, uh, Katie. Uh, and Jedi Council, we should say, is spelled uh, C-O-U-N-S-E-L. Uh, and it's an interesting podcast uh, that looks at uh, mental health issues through the lens of uh, popular fictional characters. So we've been talking about that in a little bit. Um, but the additional reason why I wanted to have you on was you t- tweeted so, you tweeted something I saw that you gave a presentation on uh, connections between science, religion, and mental health. Could you talk about uh, that presentation? Sure. A friend of mine who's a colleague and a professor in philosophy here has a regular series where he does lunches that kind of have topics and and talks that talk about science and religion, either of them or sometimes they intersect like in my talk. And so the idea is it brings in a lot of people from the community, from spiritual communities, from the public, scientists, um, and just kind of talks about how these issues go together. So the talk that I did was mostly focused on how mental health has recently made extra efforts to affirm the religion and cultural beliefs within their clients and how and, and to pay attention to how mental health is affected individually by someone's spirituality. And in addition to that, there's been movement to make mental health care more scientifically driven over the last several decades, which I, I think both of these things are positive and lead to good outcomes. There are some times where the religious or spiritual guidance is in conflict with the scientific guidance in the mental health field. And so sometimes there are these areas that are more difficult to deal with. But overall, I think that it improves the care for the clients. And it also helps to um, kind of take, well, actually someone during this talk stayed afterwards and said that one of the things that he thinks is important is basically taking wisdom where you can get it. And so another aspect of the this other than kind of taking mental health care and tailoring it for individuals, individual spiritual needs is also kind of some of these therapies that build on practices taken from religiosity. For example, I've seen um, in the past that you've had some people on this podcast talk about mindfulness, for example, and that's been a core part of a lot of the therapies that we use. And, And even people who are not spiritual or religious there seem to be some benefits in certain types of therapy for that. Mm-hmm. Um, yes, that's interesting. Um, I think m- maybe the, I mean, my kind of lay understanding would be like, and this is oversimplifying but for sure, but it's like uh, science and religion are would give, are like two separate lenses. And there's that famous quote from Stephen Jay Gould that they're like non-overlapping magisteria. Um, so, you know, on Life TV, we try, connections between between science and religion uh, where, where they exist. Um, what, what is where there's an overlap instead of an opposition? An area where there's overlap? Well, one of the things that's that's been 
found both some of the wisdom within, and of course there's a lot of diversity within spiritual communities, but the idea that uh, people getting together with commonalities and supporting each other during difficult times happens in a lot of spiritual communities. And there's a lot of scientific research that suggests interpersonal connections are essential to good mental and physical health. And that's a very strong, robust finding. And religious communities can be one way that people can find that. Now, there are exceptions where people can have negative effects within certain religious communities, depending on what's happening for them. But overall, there tend to be a lot of benefits. So that's one of the big ones is interpersonal connection. But some of the other aspects as well, um, compassion for others is often a value within religious communities. And it's something that within therapy, for example, in couples therapy or in individuals who have difficulty getting along with others, having compassion, forgiveness. Sometimes if you draw upon their spiritual beliefs, there's evidence that that can be helpful too. And so those are areas where it overlaps. And then the third one I would I would say are some of the coping practices within religion, for example, praying or asking for help from clergy and, and things like that. Some of those practices, when done well, can end up really showing benefits. Mm-hmm. Um, are there people who um, understand their, a mental health issue or struggle through a religious lens who are resistant to looking at it through a scientific lens? Yes, that's been something that there are within certain religious communities. And I have, though I'm a professor now in the past, I've done more direct therapy work with people um, and there are some people who believe that their mental health problems are due to spiritual problems, which is something that that explanation of mental health problems is just uh, goes way, way back. I mean, back in time. And the way that we understand it now, most of us don't think of it that way. And it can actually inhibit them from getting help because they believe that they're not doing something well enough, they're not praying enough, they're not good enough, and that's what's causing it. And sometimes that can be reinforced by their religious community, and that can be a major barrier in treatment. So that's kind of when it goes to the negative side. Um, does it, do you ever encounter the opposite side of people who are looking at it strictly through a scientific lens, and then there's some religious aspect that can give them some relief? Yes, I think that, so I'm not sure if this is exactly what you mean, but um, if for some people, for example, if they're, they're kind of reductionistic about what's causing the mental health problems. So if they think it's just a, a chemical imbalance or something like that, and they think it's just about medicine, and that will help you to get better. It can be helpful to have them broaden the way that they're thinking about things and consider finding meaning and connection through other sources, such as spirituality, as long as it, it fits with them and their personal values. Um, okay, let's let's move on to your research on, on suicide. Um, this seems like a uh, difficult topic or a um, hard one to your mind around. Um, can you just kind of lay out kind of like what studying this this topic entails? Sure. So the main I most of the suicide prevention research that I do is under 
uh, a major theory of suicide that identifies three major factors that contribute to suicide. One is I feeling socially disconnected from others. Another is perceiving that you're a burden on people, basically believing that the world is better off without you. And the third one is this um, overcoming the innate fear of death and pain. And uh, this theory, it's uh, Thomas Joyner's interpersonal theory of suicide. And so a lot of the work that I've done has been looking at how those individual risk factors are relevant to suicide with the major idea being that if we can change, alter any three of those aspects that we could prevent suicide and save lives. So for example, if we can challenge people so that they don't feel like they're a burden on others with evidence or by having them engaged in a situation where they're contributing to others, then that could theoretically reduce their desire for suicide. Um, is I, I, statistics that suicide rates are going up um, over time? Is, is that is that accurate? Yeah, if you if you kind of step back and look at the big picture, it they look steady or slightly higher over the past fifty years, which is very disheartening within the suicide prevention community and overall and has really forced a lot of people who are interested in this topic to think differently about how to do this. One of the major factors that one of the major future directions, I think, is the idea that a lot of people who die by suicide have not actually sought treatment beforehand. Some of them have. But so therefore, uh, an effective intervention is going to be something besides developing a therapy, right? So that's something that's that we've spent a lot of time on, but some of the more public health perspectives might be more effective at reaching people who don't even get in to see that therapist in the first place. Mm-hmm. Um, it seems like there's a lot more um, openness about uh, therapy and the, and the stigmas around seeing a therapist are less than they were decades ago. And there's certainly more, um, uh, prescription antidepressants and stuff like that. So is what are the theories for why suicide has not declined? Um, one of the one of the big thoughts on that, and because it is kind of puzzling, is that there you know some of the early theories of suicide are were sociological theories that looked at society and how it's made up as a whole, and so it's. It may say, suggest something at a larger level about how people feel valued and connected with other people um, that goes beyond kind of the individual level. So, for example, if um, this is kind of oversimplifying it, but basically, uh, there, anecdotally, there are some individual examples of people who um for example, if they can't afford their health care or they go bankrupt because of something related to that, they feel like a burden on others and might feel hopeless. And so those kind of societal factors like access to health care, steady income can contribute to things like suicide risk. Another area that maybe has been more concrete that people have been able to study is looking at restricting the means that people kill themselves by as, as a prevention method. And so, for example... Uh, a colleague of mine does work looking at uh, legislation having to do with gun control and suicide rates there. And um, 
I think some people believe, and it's understandable that that people will kill themselves regardless. Like, so for example, if they don't have access to a gun, that they'll just go on to kill themselves some other way. But we have evidence from different areas, including, um, for example, in the UK, they reduced the amount of ibuprofen that was in a bottle to a less lethal amount, and they saw a reduction in suicide rates. And then within the United States, they've done things like put up barriers to bridges, and they don't see that people necessarily go elsewhere to kill themselves. Some people do. Um, but with regards to guns, when people attempt suicide with a gun, they almost always die. And so some of the efforts have been focused on looking to to store guns more safely. So even things like having them unloaded and locked up. And so those kinds of things are some of the main ways they're going forward. Um, in terms of the Affordable Care Act, though, I, I don't know that, that the data isn't on that. It, it's, it's a tough time. I, I think that all of the pieces that put together, the theory I mentioned kind of tries to highlight the main ones, but um, there's a lot of work to do. And it, it's a traditionally understudied area, I think, because of the stigma and because of the difficulty studying it. Yeah. Um, I used to live in Ithaca, New York, and Ithaca was famous for uh, these bridges near the Cornell campus where, like, once a year a student would commit suicide. And um, about 10 years ago they put up um, – nets and barriers and it was a, like very long process on the natural beauty of being able to gaze mm-hmm. down on the waterfalls and stuff. But as far as I know there hasn't been no one has attempted um since they put the success um, yeah. oh. so you mentioned the side to them how is how, like how does it work on that level, how do you how do people gather information uh, on like uh, you know the motivation of people who who have died? There are a couple of different ways to do it. One thing that we try to do is look at people who um, we try to capture people after suicide attempts, for example. But another way that it's done is there is a process called the psychological autopsy, and once you've identified someone who's died by suicide you do interviews and look through their medical records and talk to their family members and other people to get a picture of what happened. One of the concerns that's come up, though, is that once you know someone's died by suicide, it changes your view and perspective of them. And so it can affect the kind of results you're getting. So really the ideal is to have these longitudinal studies where you have predictors and you're looking ahead of time. Those are relatively rare because suicide is... It's too common, but it's relatively rare on the level of, say, the percentage of the population. And so um, there have been fewer studies that are done like that. And so a lot of it is kind of looking for proxies of people who desire suicide or who have attempted suicide. Mm-hmm. Um, okay, let's let's shift to a, a more fun than suicide. Okay. I, guess, I guess most topics would be. Um, <laughs> and that's your podcast. So sure. Je- Jedi Council. Um, so what's the, what are the or- what's the origin of this podcast? Why did you um, how did you come to to do it? Well, I was I was teaching a class that focused on mental health in children and adolescents, and I started talking about kind of risk and resilience factors that lead people to various mental health outcomes, and I started talking to them within the framework of Star Wars characters because I'm I was trying to get them a little get them engaged in conversation. And then at the same time I have um there's a graduate student 
in the program here who has a lot of overlapping interests, both in psychology and in kind of, I guess, geeky stuff like Star Wars. And so then we started talking about uh, doing a blog that would take fictional characters but kind of take it seriously in how we evaluate what factors led to their mental health outcome and then try to talk about their diagnosis and their treatment. And so our goal really was to find a way to basically disseminate accurate information, but in a way that people might be more interested in than just writing about the information without the Star Wars part. And so then that we both liked podcasts, so that developed into a podcast, which that's the main thing that we do now, actually. Mm-hmm. Um, so you kind of um, take a, a given character or connected characters from a piece of pop culture and... What would you, do you do an analysis on them? How, what, what would you a diagnosis? What is how you how would you describe what you do? Well, I I think that so in clinical psychology, what we try to do when we first have an individual present with a problem is that we give them various types of assessments and evaluations to try to figure out what's going on with them and then come to a diagnosis that, and then select a treatment. So we try to do that same thing. So for example, with Darth Vader, who was the first character that we looked at that involved watching all of the star Wars movies and paying attention to all of the pieces of his upbringing. And he's a character that has, we have more information on than a lot of others in terms of how he grew up and stuff like that. And so we pay attention to that and kind of look at the pattern of symptoms that he expresses as Darth Vader and see what it maps onto. In that case, we decided that he fit best with um, narcissistic personality disorder. And so we'll kind of give a history. Then we'll talk about the symptoms he exhibits and why we think he has that diagnosis and then talk about what the evidence-based treatment is for that diagnosis. Darth Vader has narcissistic personality disorder. Okay, so some of the symptoms include things like um, entitlement, and he certainly seems entitled and believes that he should get whatever he wants immediately. And when he doesn't do that, he acts out aggressively, which is a pattern that's common with narcissistic personality disorder. In addition, he has grandiose visions of how things should be. Um, He early on has some um, visions of ideas ideal love with like Padme. What's wrong with So early on, he had um, these visions of perfect love with Padme and, and those didn't work out. And then he also believed that he was, well, he, he actually was stronger in the force than many of the other people. He was higher on midichlorian star Wars. People get mad at me when I say that. Um, <laughs> but anyway, um, that he was the best. And he also, so didn't think the rules should apply to him. So, for example, getting married, he thought that should be okay. He also interpreted whenever the Jedi Council was cautious, like Yoda was cautious about training him because of his signs of impulsivity and destructivity, he interpreted that as them being jealous or that Obi-Wan Kenobi is just trying to control him. And so that's real consistent with narcissistic personality disorder, basically uh, thinking you're better than people, the rules don't apply to you, acting out aggressively and having these kind of grand visions. And so he fits that pretty well. Everything we do is kind of... um, it's done a little tongue in cheek because it's obvious there there are limits to what we're what we're talking about, and he has levels of destruction that hopefully we'll we'll never see. And so it's really you know um, it's 
it's exaggerated and it's kind of used as an example, but a lot of the stuff we do couldn't really happen. But yeah, he's an extreme case, I would say, of narcissistic personality disorder. And it is bad because it is matched with all of this power and destruction at his fingertips. So yeah, it's a real problem. I think Kylo Ren shows some of the somewhat similar characteristics, but he's not as, well, he's not as, I guess, threatening at least in his stage, we'll see what happens to him next. But, I mean, he's still pretty problematic. Um, okay, let's talk about another narcissist in popular culture, um, and that's Michael Scott from The Office. Um, <laughs> did, is, would you have a similar diagnosis, or is, or is there something else with him? Well, we ended up giving him a non-satisfying diagnosis, which is personality disorder otherwise specified. So what we argued is that he has a lot of characteristics that, cause him interpersonal problems. He has a very, very high need for intimacy, but he has also no impulse control, and he's not really good at being empathic and thinking about what other people want. So he kind of, we um, we actually, for this one, we have a graph of his various <laughs> characteristics and um, talked about, like, the problem is he's so needy for um, approval, but at the same time he says and does all the wrong things. I think that he comes from a more good-hearted place, which is why I think people overlook a lot of the stuff that he does than Darth Vader, for example. And so that that's promising. It seems like the big thing with him would be getting teaching him some impulse control and some perspective taking. It seems like his emotions overwhelm his own his own concerns overwhelm his ability to think about like, oh, saying this might actually really insult someone and maybe I shouldn't say it. Yeah, I one thing that's interesting about about that character is um I think the the writing evolved and the character evolved and um the performance was so good that in the beginning he was more of a one note like buffoon uh character and and the villain of the show a comic villain and then as the show went on you saw more and more facets of his personality and he became more human, and uh, Steve Carell's performance is just so good that you can't kind of help but feel affection for him, even though um, he he doesn't really evolve as as the show goes on. Um, or, but you 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 your affection for him increases. Yeah, I, I agree, and I think that's one of the things that's so great about The Office. I mean, even Dwight, who's totally irritating in every way is kind of endearing by the end of the series and Angela and a lot of the characters that are frustrating. And I agree. I think Steve Carell has a lot to do with that too. He's just, he's just, you, you see throughout time more of the times where he's trying to be happy. And I actually think his connection with Holly helps to kind of reduce some of the inner loneliness that's driving all of his kind of overwhelming behavior if I had to speculate on a completely fictional comedic character. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, so well, an episode that you did recently, or you did a two-part episode, mm-hmm. uh, was on uh, The Big Lebowski, uh, which is one of my favorite movies. And um, can you uh, talk about um, both the dude and um, the other characters <laughs> in, in, in this movie? Sure. So the dude I view as someone who is kind of low on the personality characteristic conscientiousness, which is one of the, you know, the big five personality traits that psychology has identified. Um, He's real relaxed. He's very dude. I think some of that interacts with his substance use as well. And um, 
you know, one of the things we didn't want to do is over-pathologize the dude. And, I mean, it's all ridiculous anyway, because, of course, it's a very funny movie. But what we did want to talk about is some of his substance use issues. So he does exhibit some signs of substance use problems. Like, he he's driving and, like, drops a joint in his lap and then, like, pours alcohol over it and, like, runs into a car. Which, of course, isn't funny in real life, but it is within that particular thing but that is can actually be a sign of substance dependence so that's kind of where we take a lot of liberty to talk about stuff we like and hopefully that entertains other people and allows them you know it's kind of like when we're talking about suicide prevention it it can be really painful to talk about some of these mental health issues but hopefully if we bring in some levity like through the do that can be helpful. Um, so I think he does meet for cannabis dependence. I think in terms of his use and things like that, uh, frequency, Walter Sobchak seems to have more of a, an anger problem. Um, he is kind of the opposite of the dude on the personality characteristic of agreeableness. He's <laughs> very disagreeable, as you know, um, very prone to anger, uh, doesn't like when people anything affects his bowling game and he also just has very rigid thinking about things and kind of a way to act. Now he does talk about being in, in NAM a lot and so we were wondering if some of that is PTSD but it's hard to tell from the brief view that we see of him whether he's having flashbacks or or nightmares or, or if it's more of kind of like uh, anger issues that are unrelated to that. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, does Donnie have a, is there enough, does Donnie present enough of a personality to get a diagnosis? There's something going on with him, but I can't figure out what. I'd have to do more testing, because it does seem like he's kind of understanding things on a different plane than other people. <laughs> yeah. I, <laughs> so I'm yeah. not sure what, though. <laughs> yeah, I guess we'll never know. He, uh, <laughs> spoiler alert, he doesn't, he doesn't make it, so, um. I know. It's very tragic. Um, are there any other, um pop culture characters who you think would be uh, good to quickly discuss? Let's see. Um, well, one thing that we talk about, let's uh, let's see from Star Wars. Um, well, we do talk about Kelly Kapoor from The Office, too, so another kind of character. And she's interesting because we think she has histrionic personality disorder features, which isn't that common because it doesn't bother people a lot. But she has this kind of superficial mood and affect and kind of really calls a lot of attention to herself. Like when she tells Ryan that um, she's pregnant when she's really not and those types of things. And I do think Ryan, by the way, has some narcissistic features. So they kind of are an interesting match of, of personality there. And so she, she's interesting because she kind of from the early part of the, of the season, at least from say the second episode of diversity day, she actually becomes more extreme in her personality. I mean, to the point where the finale, she's running off with Ryan impulsively and like um, leaving her husband behind. So she kind of has the opposite trajectory as some of the other characters in terms of maturity and things like that. Um, do you think that um, the, the, the way fiction and entertainment works, we're more likely to see characters that have some kind of diagnosis because they're exaggerated and they want to, uh, creators of the work of art want to keep our attention and keep us guessing. And so is that like, like everyone, everyone on the office has some kind of personality disorder or just like, does everyone in real life have some kind of personality disorder? <laughs> I definitely think it's the former. I think that the personality stuff especially is exaggerated for, um, 
for humor purposes, I don't think everyone has a personality. Everyone has a personality, hopefully. And a lot of people view personality disorders as just extremes of those levels. And I tend to agree with that model versus kind of like there's personality disorders and then people who just have none of these issues. And so I think because in that view where it's like the personality disorders are kind of extremes of personality that most of us can relate at some level to those characters in the office, though we're not quite to the extreme. Most of us aren't. So most of us relate even to Michael, like wanting to be liked or wanting some approval. It's just that most of us have more skills in place that will help us get to that. And so I think that um, certain types of mental health issues can be used to inspire people. And so a lot of the time, the writers of the shows, they don't say that that's what they had in mind, but they're thinking of someone they know, and they'll kind of exaggerate that. Like I had heard about that with Sheldon from Big Bang Theory, where some people were wondering, oh, does he have high functioning autism? And the writer said, we didn't intend to do that, but it's based off someone we know. And so I wonder if that's some of what people do. I think it can go really wrong when people do that, and it can be stigmatizing, but other times it can work really well. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you know, maybe it's just uh, the exaggeration, you know, especially with comedy, um, mm-hmm. exaggeration makes sense to me. Um, okay, we've gone about half an hour. Um, do you have anything else you'd like to add? Where, where can people find Jedi Council if they're looking for it? Where I actually, I have a sticker to, we're, <laughs> <laughs> we're at jedi-council.com and our, and from there you can see our blog posts and our podcast. We're also on iTunes, Stitcher, and Podbean. Cool. Um, and this show is available on iTunes, uh, and you can leave a reading, uh, if you enjoyed it. Um, uh, thanks so much, Katie, for coming on. Thank you for having me on. Uh, and thanks to all of our viewers and listeners. We'll see you again next time. Before you go, a quick message from the suits at Meaning of Life TV. Meaning of Life will always be free for you to watch and listen to, and we don't even go the NPR route of guilting you into donating during Pledge Week. But we do have a small request. If you enjoy Meaning of Life programming, rate and review us on iTunes. The iTunes algorithm weighs positive reviews heavily, so taking a few minutes to rate and review us will help more people find out about our shows. Also, of course, we encourage you to subscribe to our Twitter and Facebook feeds. Thank you.